Please be seated. sermon text this morning is uh, Matthew 10, 1 through 15. Uh, Our main focus is going to be verses 5 through 15, but I wanted 1 through 4 there again uh, before us this week. You can find uh, Matthew 10 on uh, pages 814 uh, to 815 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of God. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, Let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray for your Spirit's ministry now among us. Uh, We need to feel the urgency of what we've just heard you say to your disciples there. There is a day of judgment, and your kingdom is at hand. And in light of those realities, Lord, I thank you that in my helplessness, uh, you have come and promised Uh, to be with me today, never to leave me, never to forsake me. And I believe that unless you preach this sermon, I will preach it in vain. Unless you build this church, uh, what we do will be in vain. You are the only one with the power to change hearts, to build people up, to sanctify and to save. And we thank you that we have so much evidence of your willingness to do those very things. And so this morning, I pray that you would make this uh, the day of salvation for many. I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we're looking at Matthew 10. And uh, what I want to do is uh, to have you turn with me first to John 20. John chapter 20. Um, I'll tell you what page that is in the Pew Bibles here in just a moment. 
Yes, 906. Thanks, Gary. And I want you to look with me at verse, starting at verse 21. And uh, this is, uh, the reason I'm, I'm coming here is because there's a very important theme uh, that Jesus announces uh, to the disciples, something that's very shocking in the wake of his resurrection, that is the same theme he anticipates uh, throughout Matthew 10, and really from the end of Matthew 9. And I just want you to see that it's not peculiar to Matthew. Okay, in verse 21, this is one of the resurrection post. This is one of the resurrection appearances of the Lord, and Jesus has just appeared to the disciples, to the twelve, and he says, starting in verse 21, Jesus said to them again, "Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you." And you see, he's drawing a link between his own mission and the mission of the disciples. That has been the big theme we've been seeing from the end of chapter nine in Matthew into chapter ten. Jesus intends that the mission of his disciples will be the extension of his own mission. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. What he's doing is he's anticipating Pentecost. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to send you and I'm going to send you uh, by pouring the Holy Spirit out upon you. And then notice what the effect of that commissioning will be, according to Jesus in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now that is awesome. Because what Jesus is saying, friends, and this doesn't just apply to the apostles. This is typical of every disciple of Jesus Christ, it's Jesus' intention that every disciple of Christ, post-Pentecost, filled with the same Spirit that came upon the people at Pentecost, will be His ambassadors. This is the language of ambassadorial appointment. It is exactly the same thing that we see Jesus doing in Matthew 10. So come back with me to Matthew 10. It's not that the apostles or the disciples are being vested with authority in themselves to forgive sins or to withhold forgiveness. What Jesus is saying is, you represent me now in the world. And when you tell the truth about me, you speak with my authority. You have my full authority to represent me. That is an awesome privilege. And Jesus anticipates that very thing in Matthew 10, in our passage. We saw it last week in uh, verses 1 through 4. We see it again this week in the instructions that he gives in verses 5 through 15. Now, these instructions relate to the very first uh, mission trip, if you will, that Jesus commissions his disciples uh, to go on. And there are things in the instructions that are unique to this trip where he doesn't go with them bodily, okay? There are things that are unique to this trip, like he tells them, uh, don't, don't basically go to the Gentiles. That's only about this trip. He's, what he's saying is, essentially, stay in Galilee. Uh, because Galilee was surrounded by territories that involved the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And he's saying, on this first trip, it's not going to be very long, and I don't want you to leave Galilee. 
That's unique to this particular trip. But there's also a whole set of things that what, of what Jesus says here that have universal application to all of Jesus' disciples, including us. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. And I want to try to describe those uh, instructions in terms of three obligations that I see Jesus imposing in this passage. The first obligation is that Jesus obligates us his disciples to the world. Jesus obligates us to the world. The second one is that Jesus, we see in these verses, obligates himself to us, his disciples. And thirdly, uh, we see in these uh, verses that Jesus obligates the world to himself. Us to the world, himself to us, and the world to himself. Let's look at the first obligation. Jesus obligates us to the world. And here my focus is really verse 8. Do you notice how Jesus makes his disciples the world's debtors? His ambassadors are the world's debtors. This is the point he's making in verse 8, in the second half of verse 8. You received without paying. Give without paying. You see, what Jesus is saying is, Again, it's not a new theme for us, right? We've seen this over the last several weeks, that Jesus begets after his own kind. So he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, I'm a fisher of men. And if you follow me, I'm going to make you like me, right? And here he's saying, you received without paying. Now give without pay. I am a giver, and I intend to beget after my own kind. I intend by my gift to you to make you a giver to others. You received without paying. Give without pay. I like the older translation better, NAS. Freely you received. Freely give. Such a beautiful picture. He intends He intends to make us givers. That's his purpose. He intends that his disciples will be characterized by a liberality toward the world. When Jesus binds us to himself, friends, what we see in verse 8 is that he's binding us to the world he loves. Right? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Because I have bound you to me, I am binding your welfare now uh, to the welfare of the world. That's the impact of Jesus' call. The world's welfare and our own now, by Jesus' decree, not optional for us. The world's welfare and our own are now bound together by the decree of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying to his disciples. That's what he's saying to us. We have no right to insulate ourselves from the world. We have no right. Jesus took it away. He took it away by not insulating himself against the world, right? I mean, Jesus came and was exposed to the world, right? I mean, figuratively, his whole life suffering under the law, 
literally stripped naked on the cross, bearing our shame, exposed to the wrath that the world deserved, exposed to the shame of the world, exposed to the criticism of the world, exposed to the needs of the world. That's why he did all of that. And since he always begets after his own kind, that means that that's his mission for us, vulnerable to the world, able to feel the world's needs. See, the world is harassed. The world is helpless. And too often we think about ourselves as harassed and helpless in the face of the world. And I think that's exactly backwards from what Jesus is saying here. Our mission is supposed to tell the truth about his own. See, this reminds me of what Jesus has said at the end of chapter 9, right? In his call to pray, his call to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He wants us to own. He wants us to own the world's welfare. And his vision, you know, we've talked before about how if, if those prayers in 938 were going to be answered, that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, you think about, okay, what does the answer to that prayer look like? Well, what it looks like is that givers, those who receive from Jesus are going to go out as givers. Not that people who don't have anything are going to come into the church on their own. Oh, please bring the non-Christians. That prayer that Jesus tells us to pray is a prayer about going more than it is coming. See, non-Christians are brought in that image by people who go. And it reminds, because the, the receivers have been made givers, the receivers of Jesus' gifts have now understood that that gift of Jesus' love to them, that gift of Jesus' ministry for them, has now bound their own hearts to the welfare of the world and has transformed them from receivers into givers. You received without paying, now give without pay. The grace you received, now give it away. That's exactly how Paul thought about the gospel in Romans 1, right? For I am under obligation. It's amazing. I am under obligation both to Jews, excuse me, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the simple, or the wise and the foolish. Paul, when Paul thought about his life, and he thought about the compassion of Jesus Christ and how the compassion of Jesus Christ had begun to rule in his life. The fruit that it bore was a sense of obligation to the world, to people who weren't like him, to people with whom he had no natural affinity, to people who had crazy ideas, whose moral fiber was very different from his Pharisee-trained righteousness, right? Think about the book of Acts and who it is that Paul rubs shoulders with. It's really remarkable. I mean, that Paul the Pharisee, I mean, the, 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 the glory of Christ, I know you ladies are studying 1 Corinthians, I mean, just think about it, a Pharisee planning a church in San Francisco. I mean, that's incredible. Uh, there's only one king who would pull that off. Only one. 
And so Paul saw his life as, as a life that he lived under obligation because that, that's the way the c- compassion of Jesus Christ had come into his life and now ruled his fate. And the way he understood that, right, was that he lived under obligation to the world. He was the world's debtor. And, and, and the reason for that is that that is the master's logic, right? That's verses eight, verse 8's logic. You received without paying, now give without pay. You, gave, I, you received from me, now give. Now give. And what Jesus wants for his disciples in this passage, and for us, I believe, is for his logic, the master's logic, to become our mastering logic. To see how privileged we are Again, to see it again, my brothers and sisters, how privileged we are to have received Jesus Christ and all the benefits of his ministry without paying. I mean, friends, what Paul prayed right from Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is where the Christian begins. And you received all of that freely. What did you give God besides your sin? And he took it. He accepted your sin in his own body on the tree. He accepted your repentance, which he had given to you also. And through the very faith that he bestowed on you, all by his sovereign grace, he poured in through that channel all the blessings of Christ. Friends, we have freely received, and we must freely give. What a strange king Jesus Christ is. That he would give us so much and that there would be this debt of love, right? It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us. How does Jesus want that debt paid? Not by things returning to him, but by more going out from him to others. I just, that just takes my breath away. That the way, the currency Jesus wants is for us to spread the truth about him to more and more people because he has made us in his love and grace the debtors to the world he loves. Friends, the world owes us nothing. We owe the world everything. And we need to re-enter these relationships that God has given to us with non-Christians and remember that we are not a creditor in those relationships. We are the debtor in every single one of those relationships. My non-believing family members do not owe me anything. I owe them everything. I am under obligation. I have freely received, therefore I am under obligation, a glad and happy obligation to give freely. My non-Christian neighbors don't owe me anything. 
I owe them everything. DeLand, Orange City, DeBerry, New Smyrna Beach, uh, Deleon Springs, Volusia County, the state of Florida, all the nations under the earth, they owe us nothing. We owe them everything. That is what Jesus is saying. We are the world's debtors. And to be the world's debtor means that you are the richest of men because it means, right, exactly what Paul celebrates in 2 Corinthians 8 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know what you freely received? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be made rich. That truth of Jesus' willing, self-giving impoverishment for his whole life in the incarnation. He impoverished himself in the incarnation. He was the eternal son of God. And he took, just to take on human flesh, was to take on poverty in comparison to his eternal glory. Friends, have you thought about that? To be, to be enclosed in Mary's womb was a willing impoverishment of the eternal Son of God. To be placed after being born in a feeding trough was an impoverishment. To flee to Egypt as a refugee, being carried by his parents, was a willing impoverishment to grow up in obscurity in Nazareth, the, you know, if the boondocks had boondocks, Nazareth would be on the outskirts of the second level of the boondocks. And the king of glory grew up there and learned to trade and, and was under the authority of sinners and had siblings who didn't believe in him. And then his whole public ministry, he was baptized. He let John the Baptist baptize him, impoverishing himself willingly in humility. And then his whole ministry to be misunderstood and then to not be believed or trusted, even by those who were closest to him, to be compared to the devil himself and ultimately to be rejected by men and even his father. Friends, that is the poverty of Jesus Christ. What he was willing to do for us. He he was the one who was owed everything by the world and he made himself the world's greatest debtor, taking on debts the world didn't even know it had. And that's the master who begets after his own kind. we through his poverty might be made rich. What is it that we owe to the world? We're the world's debtors, but what is the nature of the debt? Well, what we owe the world is the truth about Jesus Christ. That's what we're required to give them, what we've received. We are not bound. This is so important. We are not bound or held accountable by Jesus to make them receive what we give them. Oh, that is so liberating. 
right? What we're bound to do, the debt that we owe the world is to tell the world the truth about Jesus Christ. He says, freely you receive, now freely give. You and I cannot compel them to receive it, right? We can offer it. We can present the news about Jesus Christ, but we cannot compel them to take it. And I am so encouraged by the realism of our Lord in verses 13 and 14. When he gives these instructions, you notice how how striking it is, how carefully he makes them understand before they leave that they're not going to meet with a predominantly or universally favorable response to their ministry. Look at verses 13 and 14. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. You know, guys, your ministry is an extension of mine. And guess what? My ministry has not met with a universal response of approval. Therefore, yours won't either. Right? And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. Now that's encouraging to me, right? Because that's my experience. Is that not your experience? Friend, Jesus, we cannot measure a faithfulness by what we think of as effectiveness. We cannot do that. Jesus is not imposing that burden on his disciples, and he doesn't impose that burden on us, right? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then the one who plants and the one who waters is nothing, but God who gives the growth is everything. It is God who is sovereign over the results. It is God who controls the effectiveness of the ministry. What we are held accountable for is whether we have given to others what we've received. So your faithfulness is a measure, your truthfulness is a measure of your faithfulness. You received, right, without paying. Now give without paying. Secondly, we see that Jesus... um, obligates himself to us, which is uh, breathtaking. He does this in two ways, two specific ways. First, he promises to provide for our ministry, and second, he promises, he obligates himself to extend his power through our ministry. Let me show you what I mean. Let's uh, think first about how Jesus promises to provide for our ministry. Uh, That's uh, really uh, in verses 9 through 11. Look at what he tells him. And these are, these are specific to this trip. You know, he's basically saying, hey, get going. You don't, you don't have time. What I want you to do is, this is a short-term trip. I don't want you to make all these preparations. Trust me to provide for you. You don't need extra tunics and extra sandals. Just, just trust me. So look at verses 9 through 11. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the labor deserves his food. Friends, you know what? Sometimes we wait too long. We make all kind of excuses for why we don't act. Oh, I have to wait until just the right you know, opportunity. I have no idea what that looks like, by the way. I say it in my head, but I wouldn't know it when I saw it. And Jesus is saying, you need to get going. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. You notice he doesn't tell them the address or the emails or the Twitter handles or the Facebook names of the people whose houses will be worthy. Do you notice he doesn't do that? He doesn't say, go to Elm Street, third house on the left, you're good there. But he does say, the laborer deserves his food. See, he gives them assurance 
that he is sovereign, that he controls everything. But he tells them in general about what they're supposed to do. So what's supposed to happen? There's a foundation. You see this? This is really interesting. This is how God works, by the way. He gives us this foundation of his sovereignty. He gives us general principles, because there nowhere, by the way, nowhere in the Bible have I found a God commanding me directly to go have conversations with my neighbors. I haven't found the verse. Maybe you'll find it this afternoon. It says, Mike Francis, go talk to your unbelieving neighbors. Their names are such and such. Right? That's not in the Bible. But what Jesus does here is what he does with all of us. He gives us this foundation of his sovereignty that he's showing us. And then he gives us these general instructions and parameters and revelations of what his will is and the direction he, his will is going and that he wants us to follow. And then he calls, and that, that gap is the gap of faith. He calls us to take him seriously, to trust in his control and to move in the direction of his revealed will, even when he doesn't give us all the specifics. That's how I got to seminary. For months, I wrestled, and Maria and I wrestled, was God calling us to seminary? And I had so many questions. You know, you know me, I love outlines. I had so many outlines. Questions, 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 decision tree, decision tree, decision tree, decision tree. And then I came down to Orlando uh, on, a, on a vision trip, and I was sitting in the back of an American Airlines plane. I'm sorry, I don't remember what kind. I was all the way in the back row, right by the bathrooms. It did not smell good. And I was reading Hebrews, I can still remember it. And God met me there. I was reading Hebrews 11, and I got to verse 8 in Hebrews 11. And the writer is talking about Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called. And he went out to the land he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And when I got to that phrase, all of a sudden, I realized that what I thought of as faith was me limiting God and insisting that he answer all my questions about what was going to happen next as a precondition for me to move even one step in the direction of his revealed will. Was I called? Yes. Friends, if he is king, you are called to obey period. Notice that his sovereignty is their guarantee and his sovereignty is our guarantee. And what that means is that every bit of work we do is always follow-up work to what Jesus has already been doing we are never the first to break ground. We are never, we're never in any relationship or in contact with any life ahead of Jesus. He is always there ahead of us. See, that's what he's saying. There are going to be houses that are worthy, that are going to receive you. You're going to need to trust me. You're going to need to start those awkward conversations. You're not going to know ahead of time whether the person on Elm Street or the person on Cherokee Lane is going to be the one who responds, but you're going to have to move because you have received from me. Now freely give. You've You've seen that I'm trustworthy. Now move in the direction that I tell you to move. Go in that direction. But trust me, when you find that person who is worthy, it is I who have prepared them for you. 
Think about that in the relationships that you have, in the non-Christian interactions that you have. Understand that all the work that you and I do is follow-up work to what Jesus has already done. There's a bigger story. We don't know it all. We need to trust him. We need to trust him, and he's sovereign. So that's his provision for our ministry. That's how he obligates himself to us. He's going to provide. He's not going to send us out in his name to fend for ourselves. That is so encouraging. He will open the doors. He will provide for our needs. He will go before us. It will not always be easy, but he will be there. The second way that Jesus obligates himself uh, to us is his promise to uh, pour his power out through our ministry, and that's uh, verses 7 through 8. Go back up with me in the text. He tells them, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Now, that's amazing. There's two parts to that. In verse 7, there's this amazing announcement that we're supposed to bring, which is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is absolutely breathtaking, right? The kingdom of heaven has come. It's at hand. God is personally breaking into history, asserting his rule over the world and the people who belong to him, which, by the way, is 100% of both categories. And he he has come. The Lord's prayer is being answered right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is closing that gap between the way earth is and the way it is meant to be as God's will is done perfectly in heaven. And the kingdom has come and is at hand. That's what Jesus's ministry is about. That's an amazing announcement. But then look at the commands that Jesus gives in verse 8. And if you're like me, you might be inclined to dismiss them too quickly. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And you might say, I can imagine an objection at this point because it was in my head as I studied the text. It's like, well, what does that have to do with me? I mean, that's their ministry, right? I mean, uh, to my knowledge, I haven't seen a leper cleansed. And unless I missed it on a Sunday I was away, no one, I've never seen in this sanctuary a dead person raised. Not to my knowledge has a demon been cast out, at least not that my naked eyes register. So, right, this is, this is about, this is only about, that only has relevance to the disciples. Mike, this is one of those, this is one of those aspects of Jesus' instructions here that we need to say is unique to this first mission trip. No. Turn with me to John chapter 14. I know you're getting Bible whiplash today. I'm taking you all over the place. Turn with me to John 14. I want to show you something very remarkable that Jesus says. John 14, verse 12. That's page 901 in your pew Bible. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now, that is what Jesus is telling his disciples to do in verse 8. Because heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, 
right? Uh, cast out demons. That's what he's been doing in chapters 8 and 9. And now, like we saw last week, he gives them authority over all those things and now intends that their ministry is going to be the extension of his, that they're going to do what he has done. He begets after his own kind. That's the first part of what verse 12 is, right? Those whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. But here's the kicker. It doesn't end there. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Now, friends... It says, whoever believes in me. That means every Christian is going, at least Jesus' purpose is that every Christian is going to do greater works than he does because he goes to the Father and pours the Spirit out. Remember John 20? And part of our struggle, I think, I mean, if it just if maybe you'll identify with this. Part of my struggle with those commands and their implications and how John 14, 12 connects with my life, part of my struggle is that I have a low view of the gospel. Right? The, the, the spirit-empowered gospel. Think back to our discussion last week, right? Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not for it is about the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Spirit-empowered gospel of the reigning Christ is the power of God to bring about not just those things in verse 8, but much greater things through even people like us. Friends, I ask you, which is greater, to heal a bodily sickness or to heal the heart sickness that has been produced by sin, right? The heart is wicked, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Which is greater, friends, to cleanse the flesh of a leper or to cleanse somebody from all sin by the blood of Christ? Which is greater, to cleanse the flesh or the conscience? The gospel cleanses the conscience. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus, he who offered himself without blemish to God by the eternal spirit, cleanses, uh, Hebrews 9, 14 says, cleanses our consciences, the inside, from dead works to serve the living God. That is a greater work. It is a greater work. And if you don't believe that, it's because your vision of the gospel needs to be recalibrated. Friends, if, if a dead person rose from the dead in this sanctuary today, we would count that a great thing, would we not? Friends, that is nothing in comparison to what happens in a conversion. Right? Lazarus was raised from the dead and he died again. He died again. Because he was of the old creation. 
But friends, when somebody is born again, and how are they born again? The Word of God is what the imperishable Word, First uh, Peter, is what God uses. The Gospel is what God uses to cause us to be born again. The imperishable seed of the Gospel. And when somebody is born again by the Gospel of Christ, they are made part of the new creation and they will never die. That is a greater resurrection than a physical resurrection. It is a greater thing to destroy all the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8, which is why Jesus came, than it is to cast out a single demon. It is a greater thing for the compassion of Jesus Christ to enter a person's life and having bound the strong man on the cross, having defeated the one who had the power of death on the cross, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, to, to set the captives free, right? And then Jesus in his mercy plunders the life of someone and gives them grace and beauty and makes them holy in his image. That is a greater work. And friends, that is what Jesus does through the gospel that he has entrusted to us, that he gave us without paying and that he entrusts to us to give without pay. Friends, we need to have our sense of the importance of what we've been entrusted with and therefore the ministries that Jesus has given to us. We need those elevated, don't we? The holy things of God become common because we let them become too familiar. Friends, finally, Jesus obligates the world to himself. I want you to look with me again at verses 13 through 15. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Now, okay. I'm stopping before verse 15 because I want you to be ready for how... I want you to look at verse 15 again with new eyes because it is absolutely shocking. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to know that that's quite a whopper. Well, you know in Genesis uh, 19 and 20, right, that that Sodom was destroyed by the Lord raining fire down upon it from heaven. And Jesus is saying that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed by the Lord from heaven by fire coming down in a holocaust than it will be for the little Galilean towns that reject his disciples. Now that's a window into how Jesus understands the world's obligations to him. And there are two particular ways, I think, that in these uh, three verses that we see Jesus uh, communicating not just to the the twelve, but to all his disciples. Um, Jesus communicating to us how he 
uh, regards the world as being obligated to himself. Two particular ways. First, the world is obligated uh, to him through the message that he has for the world. And secondly, uh, through the messengers he sends into the world. Message and messengers. Let's think first about the message. Uh, you know what struck me as I, I, I reflected on this uh, a lot, and uh, chapter 10, by the way, when I, when I had those two weeks of study leave at the end of August, I spent three whole days just on Matthew 10, eight hours a day. This chapter is just absolutely breathtaking. And I kept coming back to verse 15, kept coming back, kept coming back, kept coming back in this passage. And you know what, what is so amazing is where Jesus starts. It's, the, it's this intersection that he makes between the greatest possible message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, there's no bigger piece of news. If it's true, there is no bigger piece of news in human history. If it's false, it's the biggest lie told in human history, okay? This is the greatest message, and he juxtaposes that greatest message. Where does he send that message? Does he go to Athens? Does he go to Jerusalem? Does he go to the powerful and the influential and the decision makers? No. You know where he sends it? To the least consequential of people. He sends it into the villages and the towns and the houses of Galilee. That's incredible. That's where he begins. Jesus Christ begins on the outskirts He begins in the boondocks with the most consequential of messages. He sends it to the least consequential, at least in the world's estimation, of people and place. And that has two very amazing implications. It's wonderful and it's very fearful. It's wonderful in terms of what it says about the love of God what it says about the value of people, what it says about God's heart. God does not regard and evaluate people the way the world does. The world would look at the villages of Galilee and say they don't matter. The homes in Galilee don't matter. The people in Galilee don't matter. What are they going to do that's going to change the world? And God says, the news of my kingdom, I'm sending it to them. Oh, what that says about the love of God that there is no life he overlooks. There is no life that God regards as inconsequential. I find that amazing. And really, that's just a microcosm for what you see in the rest of the New Testament, right? I mean, yeah, there are some influential people who come to Christ and, and they're broad and amazing things happen through them. I mean, Paul is one of those people. He's a leader in Judaism. He's converted. But really, the, the, across the ages, uh, most of the church, in fact, almost all the church is not like that, right? For, and even in First, uh, First Corinthians 1, that, consider your calling, brothers. There are not many wise. Right? Not many great. Look at us. What are we? What are we? Are we New York City? Are we pulling the levers of the United States of America or the levers of government? And Jesus brought his gospel to us. Don't you dare ever think that God regards your life as inconsequential, friend. Don't you ever think that his love is reserved for the great. His love is reserved for the weak. That's a wonderful thing. The cross 
and the love of God in the work and person of Jesus Christ is available to anyone. Because in the evaluation of God, there is no such thing as a great person who doesn't need Christ. Right? It's the poor in spirit who enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a wonderful thing here, but there's, it's also a very fearful thing because it means that there is nobody God regards as inconsequential. And that means that in terms of God's holiness, there is no one who is not obligated to worship him. There is no one who is following the king faithfully and who doesn't need a savior. And there is no square inch of planet earth that God is going to overlook and say, I don't need that. He wants it all. It is his purpose to be the one who fills all in all. Right? The, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea because he is worthy of it. And so you must never say, <clears throat> I don't matter. My life doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. You know, about seven years ago, I was thinking about this this morning. Seven years ago, Mark helped us uh, remodel our bottom floor. And we had a, yes, your pastor had a pool table. Remember that? Some of you, well, I, never, I never bet. <clears throat> but I had to sell my pool table. And I remember this guy came, he was a biker, and he came. We had a long conversation, had lunch a couple times afterwards. I talked to him about the gospel. And seven years later, I finally realized what I should have said. As we were standing on my driveway and I was talking to him about Christ, and he said, and he got very quiet, and he said, you know what I just can't believe is that my life would matter to God. And I said some stuff. But one of the things I needed to say, I realized this morning, is you know what, that sounds humble. That's not as humble as you think it is. Because what you're saying is you're giving yourself a pass. You're saying God's holiness. I don't, my life doesn't matter to God's holiness. And the right response to that is you don't know how much God's holiness matters to God. And so even the slightest disregard for it requires a savior to rescue you because it is an infinite offense. And so this message that Jesus sends through his disciples into the world, it's for all people, all places. It obligates the world to him. Now is the time of spiritual decision. That's what verse 15 is saying. But I want you to think about one other aspect of how Jesus obligates the world to himself here that's, that, that is very important uh, to us, uh, those of us who are Christians. And so, my brothers and sisters, I want you to notice something with me here. Jesus, verse 15 in particular, who's he talking to there? He's talking to his disciples. Now, that's very interesting because he's saying, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Why is Jesus telling his disciples about what's going to happen to the people who reject them? And I think the answer is simple. Because he wants them to know and he wants us to know how seriously he takes the ministry he entrusts to us. He wants you to know, my brother and sister, 
that he identifies so closely with you in the ministry that you carry out in his name that the treatment you receive is the treatment that he counts he has received. Doesn't that sound exactly like what he says to Saul on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? I mean, this is, this is in anticipation of the whole theology in the New Testament, the body of Christ. And Jesus is, Jesus is saying, you represent me. Think back to John 20. You are my ambassadors. Now, friends, when Jesus says that Sodom and Gomorrah are going to experience more leniency on the day of judgment <clears throat> excuse me, than the towns that reject his disciples, that could only make sense if rejecting his disciples is more morally grave in the evaluation of God than the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? That only makes sense, right? And that, how could that be? I mean, Sodom was visited by two angels, and Abraham, right? I mean, yeah. No, I mean, two angels and Lot, Abraham's nephew. And what Jesus, I think, is saying here, friends, is that something even greater, when, <clears throat> when a disciple of Jesus Christ enters a place in Jesus' name, there is a greater privilege there that is being bestowed by God upon that person or those people to whom those messengers have come that greater privilege of a greater messenger and a greater message. It is a greater mercy. And so therefore the accountability is greater. And you say, wait a second. How could... How, I, I get that the, the message is better, right? We just talked about that. But a greater messenger? I mean, look at us. Do we look like kings? <laughs> Neither did Jesus. You know, what, you know what Jesus is saying here, friends? He's saying that when you go as a Christian to a place or a home or in a relationship where you are representing Christ, you are for all intents and purposes Jesus Christ the King because you are his ambassador. You are him. You represent him. Now, friends, if you're a Christian, that needs to elevate you. It needs to elevate the seriousness of your ministry. It needs to elevate your sense of the importance of this sacred trust. And that should strengthen your sense of dignity. Can you imagine having authority to be the plenipotentiary ambassador of Jesus Christ, the sovereign over earth and sky, and to have him so entrust his cause to you that you, he counts every interaction with you as an interaction with himself. Oh, what dignity. And if you're a non-Christian, friends, and that means that even today, you have been visited by Jesus Christ. And I say that not at all because I have a high view of myself. It's because I have a high view of what Jesus promises. And so now is the time of spiritual decision for you also. He is ready. You have freely received today. You have freely received the news of Christ's work. 
And your greater privilege now imposes upon you a greater responsibility. The gospel never leaves anyone as it finds them. So may he and she who have ears to hear, let them hear. Freely you have received, freely give. Let's pray. Lord, it is you who make us ministers of your new covenant. It is you who cause the aroma of Christ uh, to be spread through us. It's not we who are adequate for these things. And so we want to, with fear and trembling, just stand in awe that you would give us this great privilege. Find us in the power of your spirit to be faithful to this great treasure. We pray in your name. Amen.